Good evening and welcome to the show. I'm Jenna Clark. Tonight, there have been five new local cases of coronavirus recorded in Victoria. Contact traces are now scrambling to figure out the source of the infection in a Melbourne aged care worker. The Victorian government has announced a quarter of a billion dollars in support to struggling Victorian businesses, but will this be enough? I'll discuss it later in the program. And finally, the Prime Minister and the lovely Jenny Morrison have touched down in Queenstown for their first face-to-face -face meeting with Jacinta Ardern since the COVID pandemic began. But first, I wanted to take you back to last weekend because there are those who watch politics closely and then there are smart people. You know what it's like on election day. What's it matter? They're all the same people, people say, and it's a common refrain you hear from most who really only engage with politicians on polling day when reams of paper plastered in how to vote instructions are thrust into your hands. We saw this awkward dance between the general public and the political class play out last weekend in New South Wales with the Upper Hunter by-election. The National Party retained the seat like they have done for the past 90 years. That is, despite the outgoing member, a bloke called Michael Johnson, resigning after allegations surfaced he assaulted a female sex worker last year. It turns out even accusations like that didn't do much to dent the Nats' popularity in the region. Is that alarming? Of course. Is it surprising the party wasn't punished at the ballot box? Absolutely not. Why? Because everyday Aussies who don't follow hashtag Auspol or other hashtags closely on social media will probably like politicians to piss off once this pandemic is well and truly over. This lack of engagement driven by the absurdity of politics and the lack of appealing candidates is why incumbency will become a powerful tool in the upcoming federal election. Just as it was in the Upper Hunter and Tasmania and WA and Queensland before that. To watch the state of politics closely right now makes you understand why no one sensible would want to enter the fray of public life, let alone the circus that is Canberra. Former Labor Minister Kate Ellis summed it up perfectly. Today I watched Question Time for the first time since I left. It was a terrible mistake on my part. If any politician thinks that fast serves any purpose or assists the public to gain understanding, well, all respect of the work they do, then they are kidding themselves. It is dire, absolute parody, Ellis tweeted last week. Having seen this display during the last sitting week, it's pretty hard to disagree. OK, well, I'm going to say to the, the Prime Minister, he can pause. He had done that and he'd moved on and I'm asking you to return to the question. Happy to do that, Mr Speaker. So I don't care whether you're happy or not, okay. you need to return to the question. With all the carry-on from the government and opposition about standing up for hard-working Australians and the working class, what they've all failed to notice is that they've all merged into one indecipherable mess. Show me someone who can pick the difference between the major parties right now, and I'll show you someone who is guilty of spending too much time on Twitter and not enough time talking to their friends, family, and more importantly, their foes offline. The less reported facts from the Upper Hunter returns is that the regional coal mining electorate has turned away from the major parties. But the ALP should and would be worried that not being able to land a blow on the coalition may have federal implications. Scott Morrison will be returned to office, not because of anything he and his charges have achieved. I mean, look how well Hotel Quarantine is going, not to mention the disastrous vaccine rollout, which would make for a funny plot line for something like Yes Minister if it wasn't so seriously flawed. No, they'll be returned because the federal opposition has no clue what it's doing or what it wants to be. The ALP at all levels actually appear to have no clue who they are or, more importantly, 
who they represent anymore. Worryingly though, for swinging and quietly progressive voters, they seem to be paralysed by this narrative that the coalition government are more aligned to the working class voters who live in traditional Labor seats. All politicians, however, also seem unable to grasp the idea that modern voters are becoming quite fluid with their support. Take, for example, someone like myself, who was raised in a working class yet conservative electorate, who is now privileged enough to have a stable and steady income. I'd have absolutely no issue paying the amount of tax I do if our schools were world-class institutions, our kids were topping the education tables, our healthcare system wasn't seeing seven-year-olds die in ED waiting rooms, like what happened in Perth recently, or our poor senior citizens weren't living in conditions akin to guinea pig cages. There is a real chance for Labor to make inroads when we next head to the polls. There are beacons of diversity and fresh ideas waiting in the wings of Parliament House and beyond right now. But given the COVID climate and the crazy machinations of Canberra, they are unable to get any clean air in party room or caucus meetings. Even the media, as the exploits of agitators usually make headlines which do nothing but fatigue the vast majority of Australians that are too busy trying to make ends meet than to pay much attention to the goings on in Canberra. So as things like pre-selections loom and talks of campaign strategies get louder, here's a message to all political parties or wannabes. Be brave, be different and think outside the square when it comes to candidates and policy. Give us real options at the ballot box instead of more of the stale same. Speaking of someone who is pretty brave is Nicole Flint and she is the government whip and the government's member for Boothby in South Australia and she joins me now. Nicole, thanks for your time. Good evening, Jenna. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit apprehensive about being on with you this evening after that scathing introduction. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I think, thank you so very much for coming on because you are definitely not someone that has been beige or afraid of speaking up as you have many times regarding the treatment of women inside and outside of politics. What did you make of Question Time last week? Well, as you hinted at in your introduction, Jenna, it was abundantly clear that the opposition, the Labor Party, Mr Albanese, are really struggling to work out what they stand for or what they want to do for the country. I think it's a, uh, a widespread... Uh, belief that the the letter of the opposition's budgeted in reply response was uh, fairly well a disaster, hasn't had any cut through. The only message I've sort of received from it is that he plagiarised some policies that uh, the former leader of the opposition, Mr Shorten, had, uh, had introduced when he was leading the Labor Party. Um, but I think what we saw was Labor again trying to politicise the issue of women's safety and using that to attempt to attack the Prime Minister and the government. And my strong and clear message to the Labor Party is please stop doing this. I spoke out very strongly about my treatment, which was in, in large part uh, thanks to the behaviour of the Labor Party at the last election, where I did feel very unsafe, where I, I believe I was unsafe, where I was subjected to all sorts of sexist attacks. Um, but we know 
thanks to the reporting of Samantha Maiden. I'm deeply disappointed she hasn't followed up on it or that any other journalists have, have followed up on it or that, you know, Four Corners hasn't done an expose into the incredibly disturbing and concerning reports from female Labor staff members about dangerous and, in some instances, uh, criminal behaviour that they have suffered at the hands of current and former uh, Labor male members of Parliament. I want to know if these women are safe. These are the sorts of issues that the Labor Party should be actually focusing on. And, and as well, today we've seen former Labor Member of Parliament, Emma Hussar, make more very disturbing claims about the treatment she was subjected to whilst a sitting Labor Member of Parliament. Mm. Yeah, what do you make of that? Because I feel like I'm just getting two completely different messages where you see uh, the new guard of the Labor Party are standing up in Parliament with their beautiful young children and it's, it's a lovely sight to see and they're talking about the importance of making sure that female representation is continued and championed. And then you're hearing stories like that of Ms Hussar specifically come out today demanding an apology and damages from the ALP. It just doesn't really align. So do you think it, it needs to come from, uh, you know, it, does there need to be a wider... Uh, look into this treatment or do you think it has to, the two parties need to figure out what's going on in their own backyard before we have a wider conversation about female representation and the treatment of women inside politics? Uh, look, a bit of both. I was really disturbed by what I read today um, from Emma Hussar saying that she's never been provided with the full internal report that the Labor Party did into the very serious allegations made against her. We know that the, mm. the ones that were deeply sexist in nature were uh, utterly and absolutely rejected as, uh, as not being true. So they were, they were false and proven to be false. And the question is, were the rest of the allegations true or not? And has uh, Ms Hussar been subjected to a huge travesty of justice? I mean, she lost her job over this. So the mm. ALP, Labor, have a lot of questions to answer. And it does, though, go to the broader issue. You know, I don't want to politicise this because we actually should all be focused on making sure every single woman is safe and feels safe whilst doing their job, whether it's as a staffer, whether it's a, as a member of the press gallery or whether it's a, a female senator or MP. Everyone deserves to mm. feel safe and to be safe. And Jenna, I just, I just remembered you mentioned Kate Ellis's excellent book, Sex, Lies and Question Time, that's recently be re mm. been released. And I would recommend that mm. to all of your viewers. It is a fantastic read. And Kate Ellis herself rec recounts awful, truly sexist rumours that were spread about her when she was a member of the ALP, uh, often by members of her own party. So we have so much work to do to clean up federal parliament for women. It's one of the things I'm deeply passionate about and focused on during the remainder of my term in parliament because all parties bear the responsibility of fixing this for all women and our safety could not be more important. If we can't fix things in federal parliament, why on earth should the Australian people uh, work with us or respect our views when we tell them to clean up the, the issues that women are facing at home and in, and in workplaces around the nation? How can we have any credibility if we're not getting our own house in order? 
Indeed, I think we all share that responsibility, specifically us in the media, and we look forward to pursuing that further with you. But I guess on to other prickly issues. Vaccines. How do we clean up this rollout to ensure more of us get vaccinated against COVID-19 and we can get on with our lives? Nicole Flint. Indeed. Well, you know, we know we had some supply issues at the start, which have been rectified. We have millions of doses uh, on the way in Australia and on the way to Australia. Now the challenge does seem to be uh, people's hesitancy uh, and mm. not wanting to get vaccinated. So obviously we're appealing to everyone out there in the community if you are able and eligible to be vaccinated, please do. I mean, I understand why uh, some Australians are sort of feeling a sense of complacency. We have had the best result in the world in relation to our coronavirus COVID-19 response. So it's very easy to feel safe when we've seen mm. so few outbreaks and when we haven't seen the absolute tragedy and devastation that the rest of the world has faced, which has uh, made sure that People have not been at all complacent about getting vaccinated and they've done so as quickly as possible to protect themselves and their loved ones and the broader community. So our message is if you're eligible, if you've been contacted to say please get vaccinated, then please do. Indeed. Now, moving on to other topics, what do you expect to see come out of the Trans-Tasman Dialogue this week? Are you pleased that Jacinta Ardern's government is now backing Australia's fight over China's barley tariffs? And is China a concern to your constituents in South Australia? Well, obviously, I'll uh, leave the, the diplomacy and the high-level talks <laughs> up to the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister on this issue. But, of course, I think most Australians are, are very concerned about the Chinese Communist Party and the manner in which they've been uh, behaving and posturing. And, yes, my local residents, I think, like most Australians, are very concerned about our, our safety and protecting our values and making sure our entire region uh, stay safe and that we continue to live in the wonderful, peaceful democracies that we do throughout our region, whether it's Australian, Australia, New Zealand, our close Pacific Island friends and neighbours. We want everyone to continue to enjoy the great quality of life that, that we do, thanks to the wonderful democracies that we live in. Indeed. Nicole Flint, member for Boothby and Government Whip, thank you so very much for joining us on Shari this evening. Thank you for having me, Jenna. Now, rolling lockdowns, vaccine hesitations and mixed messages from leaders all over the country. It's absolutely no wonder that business leaders are pulling their hair out when it comes to getting Australia back on track, back to work and ultimately back in the black. Jenny Lambert is the Chief Executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who has been calling for clarity around government decisions. And she joins me now. Jenny, thanks for your time. My problem, no problem, Jenna. Great to be here. Now, the news... The news today of five new cases, one worryingly inside an aged care home in Victoria. It's clear we've dropped the ball when it comes to COVID-19, isn't it? Well, I mean, these things will happen. They have happened. We certainly can do better. We all have to do better. COVID management is a collective responsibility. It's a responsibility of all level of governments particularly, um, but also all of us. It's a responsibility for the population to be vaccinated and for businesses to do their part to encourage, encourage uh, people to be vaccinated and to work with governments very closely.
But it is, it is worrying that all of this happens when we just don't have clear plans and clear certainty as to what we're expecting mm. from our governments. Yeah. The one issue that I get the sense from most leaders, be they in business or politics, such as we touched on with Nicole Flint just there, is how on earth do we get people to take up the vaccine, specifically now the 17 over cohort? Do you in the business community have any suggestions on how we get this show on the road? We've, we've, off, we've certainly put plans on the table with government to work with them closely on rolling out a, a good communication strategy. I mean, we, we're actually mm -hmm. part of an international uh, movement with the International Chamber of Commerce called Convince, where employers can play their part in encouraging more people to be vaccinated. So we certainly can do our bit. But we do have to be aware that it is, it, we have to be aware of the liability issues for, for employers to step in in the health area. We need to be very conscious and mm -hmm. work very closely with governments and work within the boundaries they set. So it's not something that employers can just do on their own. We have to do it very strongly uh, in hand in hand with government. Speaking of hand in hand, the Victorian government have announced a new $250 million rescue package for businesses impacted by this new lockdown. You've uh, probably had the data digest it. Do you think it goes far enough? Well, I think it's only going to cover part of the cost. I mean, we know that the estimated cost of a seven-day lockdown will, will be in the billions, not uh, $250 million. So it will certainly go a long way, and it has been very welcomed by the Victorian businesses. But we've got a long way to go to get more certainty as to what, what, when support should kick in and, indeed, what response government should be, um, should be making when it comes to these community cases when they do come out. Uh, you know, escape uh, from quarantine or whatever. So we need to have a much greater understanding of what governments are going to do. A seven-day lockdown is different than a five-day lockdown, is different than a three-day lockdown. And sometimes business mm. doesn't know what's going to happen until everyone else knows. And by then it's too late for businesses to plan for what the lockdown implications will be for them. Yeah. Uh, there were talks before this last outbreak in Victoria about uh, something like a COVID passport, where if you were fully vaccinated, you would be exempt from things like lockdowns and things like that. I'm assuming that uh, the CCI would welcome something like that? Well, we don't like the term passport, because I think that, that has connotations of an international movement. But certainly, through MyGov and through our vaccination records that we hold within the health system, we can, we can actually provide a verification mechanism for people to show that they're vaccinated. And there's no doubt that a vaccinated traveller, whether they're travelling interstate or internationally, is providing greater certainty and safety uh, for themselves and for other passengers and for people at their destination. So vaccinated travellers is an important part of the equation for any travel. And the more that we can encourage people to be vaccinated so that they, they can do more things, so that we can all do more things, so we can start to open up Australia, it's so important for the mm. population to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. Indeed. What do you make of Treasurer Josh Frydenberg staring down Victoria's calls for more Commonwealth subsidies for local businesses caught up this time, some now having to close their doors for the fourth time in Victoria? Look, to be honest, we're... What we've seen in the last few days has been really disappointing on all sides. We've seen more blame shifting this time than I think any other time. I mean, when we started out battling COVID a year ago, the governments really started through National Cabinet working very closely together. But increasingly, we've seen over the last 12 months, the COVID responses becoming more political and a lot more blame shifting between governments. And that's disappointing, because in the end, it is a collective responsibility. It's a responsibility for all of us, but particularly for both governments to be working closely together. 
But, you know, we know that um, we, without that plan, if we had a plan, if we had an idea of what the state government response would be given a certain number of cases, then, then really there's a much stronger role and an opportunity for federal government to match the state governments. At the moment, though, a federal government would say, look, you know, you, it's you that have called the seven-day lockdown. You could have done it differently. You could have managed it differently. And it's very hard for the federal government to just fund any action. What we need is much greater certainty and a much greater agreement between governments about what the response should be. And then potentially you should start to look at how that cost can be shared between governments because there's an agreed way forward. At the moment, mm. the state governments are doing whatever they think is appropriate for their circumstances. And sometimes that's way over what other state governments have done in the same set of circumstances. It's that lack of common ground as to what the reaction will be that means that it's very hard for there to be a cost sharing, particularly if one side is saying to the other side, look, it, you've, made, you've made this cost much longer and much more expensive than what it otherwise needed to be. That's not a good, that's not a good start if you're trying to get a cost sharing arrangement. Mm. Do you think, and I, I'm, I'm aware that the, this may turn into a massive big talk fest, but we've got National Cabinet with all the leaders of the states and territory and the Prime Minister together. Do you think it's time for all of the state and, treasure, uh, state and uh, uh, territory treasurers to get together and have their own version of National Cabinet? Oh, definitely. I mean, they already do. I mean, the, the, so the first um, uh, ministers in get together, the first treasurers or the treasurers and the, the um, finance uh, ministers get together. They all do, but they but the, the focus ne now needs to be very strongly on getting these plans. There needs to be a much more certain plan for what happens in terms of national restrictions, and there needs to be a much more certain plan, or even a plan, any plan, uh, for international <laughs> reopening at the moment. We don't have a plan on the table for international reopening, and that's a really serious shortcoming that First Ministers need to work very hard on. Yeah, indeed. Jenny Lambert, Chief Executive of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, thank you so very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Consent. It's one small word that bears an enormous amount of responsibility and it can have huge ramifications when we're talking about it in the context of human relationships. This week, the New South Wales Government took the first steps in reforming sexual consent laws and coined the phrase affirmative consent. In that state, clear verbal or behavioural assurances before sexual encounters will soon be mandatory. Those who fail to obtain such assurances face the prospect of being convicted of sexual offences. Saxon Mullins is a survivor and the Director of Advocacy at Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy. She was key to reforming these laws and she joins me now. Saxon, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Why do you think that the law has such a hard time dealing with issues like consent? I think people find that, you know, consent and sexual activities are really personable. They're really intimate activities. Mm. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have a hard time describing good sexual encounters, let alone bad ones. So there is a huge obstacle <laughs> when it comes to even reporting those kinds of things. Um, and then when, mm -hmm. when it goes through our court system, um, a sexual offence is a really different offence to a lot of other things that we see go through our court system. So, you know, we need sort of a, a different approach when it comes to things like that, because that, that is where the issue is when it comes to actually criminalising this. Yeah, indeed. Now, the term affirmative consent sounds a lot like legal jargon that none of us in the everyday world would really understand, but it's not, right? What does this specifically encapsulate? 
Yeah, it does definitely sound like a, a 61H sort of a term, um, but it is just <laughs> yeah. how people communicate when they're having a sexual encounter. So um, affirmative consent is, is actively sought and actively communicated. So that just means we're moving away from this idea of no means no into the idea of yes means yes. So if you want to have sex with somebody, you just check in that they also want to have sex with you. It's, it's pretty much how most people have sexual encounters anyway, but just making sure that the law reflects that. Yeah, indeed. As well as this important reform, which you have been, as I said, pivotal in getting up, New South Wales Parliament is soon going to debate issues like slut-shaming, toxic masculinity and rape culture, saying that they should be included in the state's education curriculum. I guess it follows the overwhelming response to former Sydney student Chantelle Contos's official petition, which was signed by more than 20,000 people. What do you think, yeah, once we start having honest and raw conversations, Saxon, about sex with young people, do you think we're going to see the adage of prevention is better than cure come true in, in Australia moving forward? Well, that would be the ideal. You know, we can talk about these, these law reforms as much as we want, but what we want is to stop sexual violence in Australia. Um, and education is a really key part of that. Um, but we can't just, you know, have one or two PE lessons where we talk about how to make a baby and what yeah. consent is. You know, this needs to be an ongoing process from a really young age. Um, but hopefully, you know, as we sort of feel more comfortable as a society talking about this, that does trickle down into our education and we're able to have this really robust relationship and sexuality education curriculum. Absolutely. Saxon Mullins, you do some incredible work and uh, congratulations on, on the affirmative consent laws. Look forward to learning more. If uh, you or anyone need help, 1-800-RESPECT is the number to call. Saxon, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, a quarter of a billion dollars has been announced for Victoria's businesses. Is this enough? We'll speak with a Melbourne trader shortly. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Well, Melbourne and Greater Victoria are in the midst of a fourth lockdown in 18 months. And this time, White Hot Fury is coming in thick and fast for health and government officials. Hotel quarantine is not up to scratch. Vaccinations are not being rolled out quick enough. And businesses around the state have been kneecapped while most are already on their knees. Chrissy Morse is the general manager of Chapel Street, which is Melbourne's iconic shopping and dining precinct. Chrissy, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you for having me. And... It's just absolute fatiguing for us here in Victoria. We're all absolutely over it and so emotionally fatigued, Jenna. I can imagine. So you're all feeling like that fatigued and, and over it. How are they coping this time around? <laughs> um, it feels like a bad dream. A fourth time around feels like we've lost trust in the government. Um, it feels like they are bickering and blaming each other. It feels like that our businesses have been forgotten. Um, this package that has been announced today is absolutely a drop in the ocean and I have to call it an absolutely nothing package by our government. Um, and so how are our traders feeling? They are exceptionally stressed. When this lockdown, this fourth lockdown, remember, was announced last week, all our businesses were sitting at home thinking, are the government going to look after us? And it's been now over three days 
before a token amount of crumbs was given by our Victorian government. And it's and it's just not good enough. Uh, I can imagine you can only imagine, Jenna, the the post-traumatic stress on our businesses, and you can only imagine how everyone would be feeling in terms of trust. And and when we talk about leadership, trust is number one, and that is gone in Victoria. What about, given the news today that no new wage subsidies or other financial lifelines from the Commonwealth won't be made available, do Victorian businesses feel let down by the federal government also? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> JobKeeper, uh, the Monitorium, all of those things were lifelines for us during our other lockdowns. And, and we don't have any of those lifelines. So can you imagine businesses who are sitting around the kitchen table tonight going, thank you, Victorian government, for my two and a half or three and a half thousand dollars. We're going to lose... Oh, on average, $40,000 this weekend for, for a restaurant in Chapel Street precinct. And, and they're all sitting around going, how is that going to help us? We don't have JobKeeper. Job keeper, sorry. Many of our businesses mm. didn't qualify for it in the new year. And they, and they literally won't get a cent this time around. Couple that with the fact that they're now pulling themselves out of rental debt. And, and now some mm. of our landlords have even put up the rent. And we even have um, councils around Victoria talking about putting up council rates, which is just absolutely horrific and heartbreaking for our businesses. In terms of who's been hit the hardest, do you think, mm. I, I guess Chapel Street is so diverse, there's a, a mm. great range of dining options and also retail. Yep. Is there any that have been yep. uh, targeted the most? Like, are some really, really struggling and some others are doing okay? Is there any good news out of, out of 2021 in, in Melbourne business circles? Yeah, so... Of course, Jenna, you know me very well. I'm always about my silver linings. Probably one of the, the biggest things to help our businesses and, and one thing that our businesses have loved is the community support. And, you know, them supporting local and understanding that if they don't support their local businesses now, they may not be there at the end of COVID. So that was, a, that was absolutely a silver lining to come out of this. In terms of the business sector, I mean, our nightclubs and restaurants were the first to close and they were the last to open. So they have absolutely been horrifically... Um, put back by this. And, and the other thing is, we were just getting to a stage in Chapel Street, Melbourne, where our foot traffic was the highest in a decade. We were in a place where people were feeling safe, feeling good. And, and as I said, it, it, you can imagine the trauma that it's put back there. Um, and $2,500 for the government. And we're all we're supposed to stand here and go, thank God they did that. And Jenna, they should have had this ready. You know, we had a third lockdown and the state government didn't have this package ready. They should have announced the lockdown and the package at the absolute same time. Um, it just makes sense. And I'm sick of the blame game. I'm sick of our governments blaming each other. They're supposed to be leaders and leaders are actually there to serve and they're not doing that right now. Indeed. Well, our heart goes out to you, Chrissy, and all of your tenants at Thank Chapel you. Street. Thank you so very much for Thanks, joining Jenna. us. Thank you for having me. Joining me now is Liberal MP Dr Fiona Martin and Labor MP Matt Thistlewaith. Well, Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack has reiterated there is still no rush or race to get vaccinated. Well, it's, it's not a race. Uh, it uh, has to be systematic. It has to be uh, rolled out uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that Australians obviously need to know that they have to get the jab, uh, but we can't have uh, everybody going and getting it at the same time. And that's why there has been a phased in uh, system. 
That is, despite an aged care worker being one of the five confirmed cases in Victoria today. Given all the hype and bluster and hyperbole flying around, how do we convince people to get vaccinated ASAP? Fiona, surely this is a top priority being thrashed out in party room and on your WhatsApp groups with all your coalition members? Yeah, look, obviously um, getting the Australian population vaccinated is a priority for our nation. It is part of um, a number of approaches to managing COVID and Australians are doing a great job at managing COVID. Um, Last week, we saw record numbers of people being vaccinated. Over 600,000 Australians were vaccinated. On Friday, we saw over 120,000 Australians being vaccinated and overall, over 4.2 million Australians have been vaccinated to date. So it's picking up uh, and I am looking forward to more and more Australians being vaccinated um, as we keep going. Over 99% also of um, aged care facilities um, have had uh, vaccinations as well. So we're moving in the right direction. It's picking up and I know that Australia is a vaccination nation. We know this through um, our early childhood vaccination program, which works very effectively. So I know that this is going to, um, to pick up more and more over time. Fingers crossed, I hope you're right. Matt, is it time to start considering incentives like the WA Chief Health Officer Andy Robinson said today he's going to start doing to, to get 90% of the WA population vaccinated by the end of the year? Are incentives like lotto tickets the way to go? Well, Jenna, unfortunately, we shouldn't have to move to incentives. If the government had have got the plan right and had been able to deliver on their vaccine plan, we wouldn't be in this situation. And uh, the Deputy Prime Minister says it's not a race. Try telling that to the people of Victoria who are in their fourth lockdown. They know it's a race and that Australia is losing it at the moment. Um, I do think that we do need a concerted public education campaign um, so that we're uh, using television, radio, social media from the government, um, explaining the benefits of getting vaccinated and encouraging as many people to get the vaccine as quickly as possible. The second point is that there are still problems with the distribution of the vaccine. I got a letter from a group of GPs in my community two weeks ago, 16 GPs in this practice. They're only getting 100 vaccines a week and they've been calling for more and more because they've still got people in the 1A and 1B categories that can't get the vaccine. So we've got these problems that we have to deal with uh, in terms of distribution and we need a concerted and a wholesome uh, public education campaign. Yeah, indeed. And that's the thing, right, Fiona, given the Indian variant and now the emerging uh, Vietnam variant, the Melbourne cases and the UK have now four approved vaccines available over there. Do you think it's time to get looking the TGA to look at other options like the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine, which is now available in the UK? Do we have to look at that again, do you think? Well, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is very similar to AstraZeneca. Uh, so I'm not sure that we really need to look into that because right now we have a portfolio, a range of different vaccines available. We have the AstraZeneca for over 50s, we have the Pfizer vaccine and we also have Moderna. So I'm confident that we've got the right range of vaccinations uh, and I think that's what we're going to be working with. But, you know, we're taking advice as it comes in. We're guided by the expert medical advice and I think Australians are motivated to be vaccinated. One of the biggest incentives is the fact that the vaccination is for free. And I think that in itself is very helpful in encouraging Australians to be vaccinated. Matt, what do you think? Do you think we should revisit or get the TGA to revisit other options so we can get more in the country? 
Uh, in terms of Johnson & Johnson, I think it's probably too late. You probably needed to be looking at Johnson & Johnson about a year ago. Um, and that's why Labor was saying to the government, you need to be investing in more vaccines. Um, the government keeps saying that the issue isn't supply. Um, they say that they've got enough vaccines, that we've got AZ, we've got Pfizer, you've got Moderna coming online soon. Um, it's the distribution that's the issue, as I mentioned earlier. It's simply not getting on and out on the ground in a coordinated fashion. Um, and that's where I think you're seeing the state government saying, look, the, the, the federal government can't handle this. They've bungled it. We're going to go our own way and set up our own vaccination centres. Uh, you've seen that in New South Wales and, and Victoria. And uh, I just think that the government really needs to knuckle down and get this distribution pattern right. Um, and then couple it with a public um, education campaign so that people get out and get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Indeed. Whilst let's leave, let's park federal politics for just a second because what's old is new again in New South Wales with former Labor leader Michael Daly throwing his hat in the ring to replace outgoing opposition leader Jodie McKay. Mr Daly said today he wants the party to heal before the 2023 poll. Please help me heal our party and win government in 2023. There are people in the media today suggesting that we don't have time and we shouldn't have a membership ballot. A membership ballot has never been more important for the members of the Labor Party because healing has never been more important for us. Look forward to hearing more from him on Chris Smith this evening. But Matt, what's wrong with the New South Wales chapter of your party? Will Daly or Chris Minns be the white knight for Team Red? Well, Jodie McKay stepped down um, and the party now has a process of going through to select a, a new leader. Uh, Michael's uh, throwing his hat in the ring. I was actually with Michael today uh, at a bus rally at Randwick uh, where, we're, where we're rallying with thousands of members of our community who are campaigning against cuts that are being made to local bus services and the privatisation of the bus services in the eastern suburbs by the Berejiklian government. And Michael spoke with great passion um, today about the effect that those cuts are having on the local community. Um, over the coming days, we'll see if there's another candidate. The party's got a set of rules that are quite democratic in that if there's more than one candidate, we allow the members of our party to have a say in who they want to lead the party. That gives them the opportunity to hear the uh, various candidates' visions for the party, their policy priorities, and then make a decision. And I think that that's a good thing to improve democracy. Speaking of polls, I know you must both be feeling pretty aware that there is a federal election looming. Fiona, given there are rumblings of pre-selection dramas for you and your seat of Reid, how are you feeling about your future, given what we saw with the likes of Amanda Stoker being pushed down the Senate ticket in Queensland? Well, I'm looking forward to continuing my work. My focus is on the people of Reid. Um, Looking forward to putting my credentials forward uh, and allowing the Liberal Party um, conference in my electorate. Uh, and I'm very confident that I'll be the candidate uh, at the next federal election for Reid. Is there a lot of work involved? Obviously, you will be the incumbent member. Is there a lot of work involved, you know, making sure that you have the numbers in pre-selection moving forward? Or do you think that your work really speaks for itself in the electorate? I've been working incredibly hard listening to um, all of the people in Reid and get great joy out of talking to constituents and problem solving um, and working through um, constituent issues and working with um, the local Liberals in my community in Reid. Uh, and I think that my credentials will speak for themselves. I'm quite confident that I'll be the candidate at the next federal election. Matt, how are you feeling about the looming federal election? Are you feeling pretty confident that Albo could get his team over the line? 
Yeah, I am. Uh, I think Albo is a great leader. He's certainly someone that listens. Um, it's got the right policy priorities. And you look at uh, the issues that we were concentrating on in the federal parliament last week. It was all about making sure that the government gets it right on vaccine um, rollout and quarantine, and pointing out the problems that we're having at the moment with those issues and the, the effects that that's having on our economy and the ability of our economy start growing again, uh, creating jobs, getting people into apprenticeships um, and dealing with the problems that we've had for many, many years. So uh, I think Albo's doing a great job and looking forward to him leading us, hopefully to victory at the next election. Well, guys, all the very best of luck for you and thank you so very much for joining me on your Sunday evenings. Dr Fiona Martin and Matt Thistlethway, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks, Jenna. Coming up after the break, is the Victorian government right to lay the blame on the feds or is this just this more rank politicising? Coming up after the break. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Joining me now is the senior correspondent at the Financial Review, Aaron Patrick, and media writer at The Australian, Sophie Ellsworth. Soph, a week is a long time in politics. And what do you make of the Victorian Treasurer's remarks today, laying the blame of this latest outbreak in Melbourne squarely at the feet of the federal government? Well, Jenna, I was just shocked to hear what was coming out of the Treasurer's mouth at the press conference today. Um, I'm one of the lucky ones, Jenna. I escaped Victoria, my hometown. I fled out of there on Thursday to get away from lockdown. The thought of going through another lockdown, a fourth lockdown, but the audacity of Tim Pallas to point the finger at the federal government, I was just blown away by this. I mean, Victoria has uh, absolutely stuffed up the handling of the pandemic over and over again. We've got a disastrous contact tracing system. Our hotel quarantine uh, facilities haven't been up to scratch. And now we're putting out our hand for more money. And I am actually pleased the federal government has said no, because we should be questioning <coughs> why we're constantly asking the feds for money when it's Victoria's muck-ups that have got us in this place in the first instance. Yeah. Aaron, you generally have a pretty uh, over, overarching view on these things. You were down in Melbourne and attended a couple of press conferences. What do you think the vibe is? Do you think it's the feds to blame or do you think this finger-pointing is going to tire pretty quickly in the general community? Eugenia, that's, look, that's a really fascinating issue. What is quite a, kind of impressive about the Victorian government is they're so good at deflecting blame to Canberra. So when something goes wrong, they'll stand up and I guess they'll huff and puff and they'll say, this is a disgrace what the federal government's doing. And in a political sense, I think it's quite effective. I think it creates a, creates a splash. It creates a sense amongst Victorians who are clearly feeling pretty sensitive and you know, mm. a lot of them probably pretty upset that someone else is to blame. Um, because the Victorians, mm. as far as I can tell, really want to believe that their government's doing the right thing by them, even though they take much stronger measures than other states when these kind of outbreaks happen. And the $250 million that the states, uh, the, the Victorian government are putting up 
possibly is not going to touch the sides. You know, the Australian Industry Group mm. reckons the, the lockdown is going to cost $2.5 billion. Yeah, it's uh, crazy what is going on over there and so lucky that you did escape. Health Minister Greg Hunt today reiterated that the COVID vaccination rollout is a consent-based program. The vaccination program is a consent-based program and uh, we would very strongly, very strongly encourage uh, the uh, residents uh, or where families are making decisions or other guardians are making decisions on their behalf uh, to provide that consent. Now, Soph, I don't want to sound like I'm an Adolf Huxley fan or anything like that, but do you think it's time for it to become mandatory in some instances? Look, Jenna, I think there's a lot of people out there who are concerned about the vaccine. I know friends uh, close to me who are much older than me are very concerned about, you know, reports of blood clotting and issues with it. I do not think it should be compulsory. I think people have the right to choose to get it. Of course, uh, mm. there's, you know, strong evidence that we should be getting it, but I think it is down to choice and there is not a lot of incentive out there at the moment to get it. I mean, we've heard that we may not have the borders open even if we are all vaccinated. So people are probably mm. scratching their heads. And the other thing down in Victoria, if you do try and get it, you are roadblocked at every opportunity. We've got, you know, centres where you get the vaccine, you can't get in, you ring the hotline, you can't get through. I mean, it's an absolute shambles. And also the federal government has been slow in rolling this out and that cannot be ignored either. Yeah, Aaron, what do you think? Mandatory in some instances? There was talk in WA that the Premier, Mark McGowan, was considering making it mandatory for people that work in things like hotel quarantine. Do you think that's overstepping the mark? Well, look, the problem is, Jenna, if, if you make it mandatory, you're going to have a great deal of, I think, civil disturbance. Um, mm. You look, even for child vaccination, there's, there's, there's hot spots of resistance, even in eastern suburbs of Sydney, you know, up, up say, 5 7 or 8%. So there's always a hardcore mm. group of people who will possibly go to jail or accept fines rather than get vaccinated. And then you've got a, you've got a, a larger group, I don't know, 30%, who are just hesitant about it. And in a way, um, even though clearly it's to the benefit of society if everyone gets vaccinated, it's, it's rational behaviour by those who won't. Because the risk of getting COVID or dying from COVID in Australia is incredibly low. And mm. there is a very, very low chance of also suffering illness from the vaccine. So people are just making a rational decision. So really, um, there's one way to get people to vaccinate, which is to let COVID back into the community. And, of course, that's going to happen. So, what, I think we had five cases in Victoria today. So, after the federal election, eventually they're going to have to open the borders and um, COVID's coming back. And then everyone, yeah, a lot of people who were hesitant it. getting vaccines are going to sign up and get the jab. Yeah, I think you're definitely on the money there. Now, guys, I've got to pivot away and focus on France. We can't go there, but we can definitely watch the French Open on the telly. Ash Barty won't be following Naomi Osaka's lead at the Roland Garros because she'll be boycotting media appearances impresses is kind of part of the job we know what we sign up for as as professional tennis players and I can't really comment on what Naomi's feeling or, or on her decisions that she makes but um, at times press conferences are hard of course but it's also not something that that bothers me um, you know I've, I've never had problems um, answering questions or being completely honest with you guys it's not it's not something that's ever uh, phased me too much 
our golden girl there, it said she, he's in the hunt for her second win at Roland Garros and she said that press conferences are not something that bothers her but Osaka copped a huge amount of backlash for her decision which she made over the weekend. So what do you think? Is it wise or wily for the athlete to come out and say, I ain't doing press and you can find me and hopefully the money will go to a cause that will uh, help with the mental health of other athletes? Oh, Jenna, I think it's absolutely pathetic. I think she should be doing the press conferences. That is why people tune in. They love to hear what players have to mm. say after the game. They get play paid an absolute fortune. This is part of their requirement. And uh, quite frankly, I think it's utterly pathetic and she should be made to do it. Mm. Aaron, what do you think? She said she's willing to cop the $20,000 odd fine for it. Do you think that she's just taking the easier route or should we actually start being more considerate about athletes' mental health at the top level? Well, well, Jen, I'm, I'm really wary of contradicting a, a media reporter um, <laughs> because they're, they're powerful people in our industry. And, and Indeed. Also, <laughs> and I guess I'm wary of um, speaking against my own, own industry. But in this case... I'm actually on Osaka's side. Look, um, I think it's professional sports people make their money and they build their brand up, obviously, through media coverage. But every person has a choice. And um, if the individual doesn't want to give press conferences, as, as regrettable as that is for the media, I think they're entitled to do that. Um, what, what, what you're going to have here is the press are going to bully her. They're going to bully her mm. and attack her for not giving them what they want. They're going to act in their own interests. And um, that's, how, that's how the press work and that's how it's always worked. And you know, professional sports people are smart enough to understand that they're playing on the court, but they're also playing in the field of public opinion. So you do not want to get the media offside. And that's what she has done here. So it's probably not going to end up well for her, but it's certainly a legitimate choice for her to make. Yeah, it's going to be interesting watching uh, how the media responds to that. Aaron, one final question for you. Michael Daly resurrecting himself as to being a, the opposition leader. What do you make of that? Do you think he'll succeed? Well, look, um, some was saying on social media today that Michael Daly has spent two years, I think, saying absolutely nothing. And now he wants to be leader <laughs> of the Labor Party again after I think he was one of the shortest serving leaders of the Labor Party in its New South Wales history. Um, he does seem a very decent guy. I covered him on the last election campaign, hard-working. He did bomb pretty badly. He sort of miscalculated on the Sydney Stadium and um, he thought he was on a winner there. It didn't work out for him. I personally would be surprised um, if they went back to him um, because he failed so badly at the last election. But, but who knows? You know, the New South Wales Labor Party is in such dire states after its terrible drubbing in Upper Hunter that its behaviour is going to be very unpredictable and its path to power looks pretty difficult given how, how, and how powerful and how popular Gladys Berejiklian is. Indeed. As I said at the top of our little uh, get-together, a week is a long time in politics and I look forward to watching you both uh, have your say in each of your respective papers this week. Sophie Ellsworth, media writer for The Australian, and Aaron Patrick, uh, for, he is a contributor and senior correspondent for the Financial Review. Thanks for your time, guys. Thanks, Jenna. Good night. Thank you all for joining me on Shari this evening. Chris Smith is up next with an exclusive interview with Labor leader hopeful Michael Daly. Take care of you and yours. I'll see you again soon.
My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.